Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven people, companies, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. While the COVID-19 pandemic has strained the U.S. economy in general, Black and Latinx-owned businesses have been particularly hard hit. Between February and April of this year alone, 440,000 Black-owned businesses have shuttered. That's about 41% compared to 17% of white-owned businesses. It's the latest expression of challenges today's guest, Digital Undivided founder Catherine Finney, knows all too well. Catherine's organization, founded in 2012, works to leverage data and resources to catalyze economic growth in Black and Latinx communities through facilitating access to capital for female entrepreneurs. From data and research to thought leadership and programs that range from incubators to leadership training, Digital Undivided aims to empower Black and Latinx female founders to be as successful as possible. It's but the latest in a long line of projects Catherine has overseen as a self-described, quote-unquote, builder, innovator, and futurist. Efforts that have been recognized by a multitude of honors, way too many for me to even list in this podcast, including, though, the Grace Hopper ABIE Award, induction into the African American Hall of Fame at her alma mater, Rutgers University, Go New Jersey, it's where I grew up, and being named a White House Champion of Change by the Obama administration. Catherine, it is absolutely my pleasure to welcome you to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. So we met, sort of, I say that in air quotes, met through Cheryl Dorsey at Echoing Green. You're an Echoing Green fellow. You've had this phenomenal career. I have so many questions for you. I'm going to start with kind of a basic one that goes back to the beginning. So you have a really interesting academic background in both political science and epidemiology. Two sectors that I didn't ever think could potentially intersect. What is the connection between political enfranchisement and access to capital to grow businesses and public health? How do one or all influence the others in the community? I think we're seeing a perfect example of that right now with COVID, right? The intersection of politics, of science, of economics, and how all of that comes together to really influence who has access to healthcare who has access to the potential vaccines, whose voices are listened to, both federal government, but also in our local governments. We're seeing the intersection. And I'm happy. I remember when I left my career as an epidemiologist, did a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa and in parts of India on sexually transmitted diseases and illnesses in women. I started this blog. I know that seems so random, but it was 2003. Why not? And I remember my mother saying to me, like, what are you doing? Blog? Like, what is that? Because no one knew. But it's really interesting years later to see how those things are now intersecting. And my mother now gets it. Actually, I had a conversation with her a week ago. and She's like, oh my God, it makes all sense. Your epidemiology degree, what you did as a startup founder, a successful startup founder, scaling that and digital divided and all these, the Dooney Fund, like everything makes sense now. And so it's really interesting how it's all intersecting. I think as a social epidemiologist, which is someone who looks at how politics and social structures influence the spread of disease in a population, it's not surprising to me to see the things that are happening. I think the challenge is, particularly for my friends who are more traditional epidemiologists who work at your local public health department or at the CDC, we haven't 
ever really had to deal as a public health person with this kind of deep political challenge. It's usually the measles outbreak. People, a school has to close down. It's usually not this politically fraught to be able to do that because no one wants to get measles. But why does it have to be political? It's easy to finger point at one individual, and I wouldn't disagree with that because he sets the stage for how we should behave and approach. And the lack of a national plan obviously has had a huge impact. But why does it have to be political? And had you thought about the political component when you were going for your master's degree and then when you focused on social epidemiology? Was that as prominent or is that something that's kind of new to you? Well, it was prominent then. At the time, my thesis was focused on HIV violence in women. And I was doing work mostly in South Africa and KwaZulu-Natal, which is kind of on the east coast of South Africa. It's where everybody kind of knows it because it's where some of the national parks are located. It was there that I saw the intersection of politics and disease. HIV is actually a fairly hard disease to get. You have to have a sizable amount of bodily fluids and you have to have an entry point into the body. It's not airborne like COVID. It's a hard thing to get. And it was facilitated quite a bit by a number of things. For a long time during the apartheid regime, there was no data collected at all on the African population in terms of health. There was few points in which if you were African in South Africa, and at that time it was about 80% of South Africa was African descent, there was very few places you could actually access healthcare. It was very, very limited. Therefore, it doesn't take an epidemiologist to think, wow, maybe if there was more access points to healthcare, maybe if there was some more equal distribution of some of the antiretrovirals that came out, people who are paying more attention to trucking, because that's one of the ways in which it was being spread through truckers. Maybe if there was more equality with women, maybe this would not have exploded as large as it did. But it was definitely an economic challenge. And then it was also the politics of it. And you had politicians who would tell you outright, I don't believe this is an issue, or would say things like, I heard if you have sex with a virgin, it'll cure it. And these were politicians. These were leaders who were saying this. And of course, if your leaders are saying this and you're someone who's looking for leadership, you're going to start to kind of believe that, right? And I think that's what we're seeing here. So it's all connected. Health is deeply political and it's deeply related to economics. As is misinformation, unfortunately. There's the biological fact and the social reality. And those two things are in deep conflict right now, particularly in America. And that's where the challenge is for us. You may feel that wearing masks sort of entrenches on your rights and your personal rights. That's a social reality. But the biological fact is COVID is an airborne disease and it doesn't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent. That's irrelevant. And I think that's the real challenge is that we have this friction between the biological fact and the social reality. Can you break down for us why Black-owned businesses in particular have been so hard hit post-pandemic, and also why people of color and Black communities and Latinx communities have a higher prevalence of contracting the virus? I think depending on where you're at, particularly in urban communities, you don't have a lot of space. You live maybe in an apartment building. If you are living in certain types of housing, ventilation wasn't a concern when they were building a lot of the affordable housing units that are there. Didn't really care about ventilation in many cases. You also see that there's high rates of asthma in those communities as well. So you have that. That's like a sort of structural 
problems. There's not enough hospitals. There's not enough access to healthcare. Those are the structural problems. And then you also have the challenge, particularly as an African-American business, you don't have access to capital in the same ways that white businesses do. Some of it is historical, maybe because a white business owner's family had relationships with a particular bank for many years. They then had a relationship. So when this happened and PPP loan applications were coming out, they were able to foster those sort of relationships in order to get in front of line. Maybe it's something like that, which is more historical. Whereas as an African-American, most of us did not have access to capital for a very long time. And many of us still don't. So we don't have those relationships with a personal banker. The person doesn't know us to put us to the front of the line. There's also the communities that we are based in were hard hit, again, because of those structural challenges. And those are our customers. So our customers were hard hit. One of the things we saw with the Dooney Fund was about 50% of the applicants were people who were personal service. It was beauty shops and nail shops and nail technicians and bakers, people who were really providing services. In the African-American community in particular, some of the most successful entrepreneurs have been hairdressers. The most successful entrepreneurs were hit the hardest by this in our community. And many did not have personal relationships with bankers. And that was really how you were able to get in front of the line with the PPP loan was that you had a relationship with your bank in a personal relationship, not just having a bank account, but you knew someone at the bank and it was able to sort of walk you through. I mean, that reckoning hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it will in years to come. But unpacking how those PPP loans were distributed, I saw a couple stories, but the media really didn't cover it as fulsomely as I had hoped. And I even experienced it. I'm president of my local temple. We had a very hard time getting a PPP loan because we worked with a local bank. We didn't work with Chase or Bank of America. You could see, especially people who had those deep connections and people who had more assets, they were actually, ironically, and sadly able to get those loans. Yeah, it was access, right? Who had access. And I think as a woman of color and a Black woman specifically and a business owner, It really underscored to me how important it is for us to really be able to have access and develop those relationships. Digital and Divided as an organization did receive a PPP loan, and it received it because we had a long-term relationship with J.P. Morgan Chase, and we had a personal banker. That is the only reason why we received it, because if we would not have had that, to be really honest, we wouldn't have received it. When did you start the Dooney Fund? And can you talk a little bit about the impetus behind it? I mean, we've touched on it. You already went there. I was trying to segue there, but you're way ahead of me. Being a social epidemiologist, I knew that it was going to be bigger, not because I'm a futurist, but that wasn't a futurist sort of part of my brain that was working. It was the transmission epidemiologist part of my brain and seeing how we were responding to it or our lack of response to it. And so we created a fund that did to fund some of our founders who had gone through our program that we knew were going to have some challenges. And this was in mid-March when the first sort of PPP loan idea was coming out. We knew historically that we weren't going to get it. We meaning Black women. We knew that was going to happen. And so we created this small little pot of money and gave, I think it was like about $1,000 to each of our founders. No strings attached. As long as you could prove that you were in business and still working on your business, we gave it. Because one of the things that we found is for people of color, 
we are made to jump through so many hoops to get very small amounts of money to the point where we're just don't even want to do it. It's like this constant questioning of what we're going to do with it, a distrust of us with money. We did it and we saw how successful and impactful that was. I was scheduled to go on vacation, actually, on a cruise to Alaska, leaving from Seattle at the beginning of April. In my family, we call it the cruise that was never, ever, ever going to happen and still will never, ever happen. By the way, Alaska is on my list. And the only way really to see Alaska or the best way is on a cruise. I had been to Alaska before and we were taking my son and we were going to go to Glacier Bay. I mean, it was like a whole big thing. Of course, that didn't happen. And so I had this pot of money that was refunded and wanted to do something. Was feeling, I think like most of us at the beginning of April, a little bit helpless. And what can I do? So took the money. My husband works at Microsoft. He's an engineer and Microsoft significantly increases matching this year. I mean, to an amount that I've never seen a corporation do. This was just amazing. So they have this matching program prior, and this is all public. I'm not sharing anything that's proprietary, but prior it was matching up to $15,000. So as an employee, if you donated $15,000 to a nonprofit, Microsoft would match $15,000 of it. That's actually amazing. And I had not heard that before. That's incredible. This year, they increased it to 25000 which was like matching for employees, which is incredible. So they were already the highest, I think, of any corporation. And now they're like even blowing it through the roof. And my goal was like, okay, I'm going to see how I can utilize this privilege I have to help as many Black people as possible, because not many of us have access to that sort of opportunity. So how can I leverage this to help my community? Took the money from the vacation, took the matching money from Microsoft. I said to my family, I don't want anything for my birthday except for you to just give money to this effort. Don't send me anything. You don't have to send me a card, nothing. Just do that. And we started to do any fun. The idea was only to give out about a hundred sort of micro payments. These were payments of like a hundred dollars. And the reason why we chose micro payments is twofold. One, we wanted to be done quickly. And if we gave anything over a certain amount, usually with the IRS is over $600, you have to like track it, you have to do all these forms and things like that. And we didn't want to have to do that because that would slow down the process. And we knew people needed it quickly. So we gave $100. We only required that A, you identified as a Black woman, that you had some sort of working web presence, like we could see that you had a company. We purposely didn't say a website. Because we realize a lot of Black-led companies don't have websites anymore. They have Instagram accounts. Or Facebook. Something to show that you have a business, some sort of web presence. And we gave it out. It went really quickly. I think people were first really surprised about how quickly we gave it out. It was about a 48-hour turnaround. We then, and I thought, well, oh my goodness, we were getting a lot of our partners asking us if we as an organization needed support and money. And if we were struggling, one of my superpowers is I'm very good at managing a budget. I can manage the hell out of a spreadsheet. Budgeting is my thing. So we were good. Just for the record, most creative geniuses are not good at budgeting. So it's fine. Well, but I'm a creative genius, but also a Black woman. I don't have the access to capital that my colleagues do. It's interesting. I've had conversations with friends who are white male about that I don't have the same opportunity. So if I get an investment, I have to be very clear about how I'm going to use it. 
and very careful. And I have to think very strategically because I may not get that again. It's not a guarantee that I'm going to get the same opportunity again. So I'm really smart with how to use it. It's also a responsibility too. I think when you're a person of color and you have someone supporting you, you feel a great deal of responsibility to make sure that you're a good steward of that support. So you're feeling this could be my one and only or my last shot. I better use it really wisely. Well, not my one and only. It's more like I don't know when it's coming again. So let me make sure that I manage this really effectively, make sure that I have this cushion. So if something happens, I think when you are a woman of color, it's not hard to imagine bad things happening because you've had bad things happen to you. You put a little rainy day, as my mother would call it, my mad money. My parents had a shared bank account, but she would always have a little bit she would put to the side just because, you know, her intuition. So if anything came up, if there was something that I needed and it wasn't in the budget and she would say, you know, let me go in my mad money. I, I got a little something for you. Don't worry about that. You need some new sneakers. Okay. I'm going to go in my mad money. I have no idea how much that is in the mad money. I don't know how much she still has. I don't know, but it was always there. And so growing up with that, it really impacted the way I look at budgeting. Did was not in a bad position. And being frugal and being really thoughtful and because we're very strategic as an organization, knew how much money we needed for the rest of the year to execute on our plan and had that and then some in the bank, particularly liquid, which is always so important. When partners came to us, I actually asked them, you know, we're okay. Can we use this money instead to give out to other Black women business owners who we know aren't okay? We know they're not okay. And we know it's hard for you to do that. It would be hard for you to do this, but we can. And we created this quick system. And we had a number of partners. All our key partners were like, yeah, we're on board. So within a six-week time period, we gave out something like $175,000, gave out $100 microinvestments to over 1,700 Black women businesses. And the impact was incredible, not just for the money, But it was the support and knowing that someone saw you at a time where you really needed help. And I just remember the times that I really needed help myself and to someone who saw me and gave me help and didn't ask for anything and didn't make it hard on me because I was already going through something hard. I did not need an additional layer. It was really impactful. Duny Fund has spurred many other things. Um, It's now its own organization with a board that's comprised mostly of young Black women under the age of 45 who are leaders. And the idea is I serve as board chair emeritus, meaning I'm just there as the old person. I'm not over 45, but I'm like the old person (laughs) to give guidance and some perspective. But they truly run the organization and are thinking of really interesting ways of how do we give capital out when people need it the most. I think a lot of people, I got a lot of pushback at the beginning of Dooney Fund from all sorts of people who said $100 is not enough. I said, well, it is a lot when you don't have it. <laughs> you know, like it really showed people's privileges. Do you know what you can do with $100? You know, you could buy at least a week's worth of groceries, but maybe even more. You could pay off your light bill. You could pay your phone bill for the month that you need in order to keep up with your work. There's a lot you can do with $100. And then there was also people who had a, well, how are you tracking? How are you making sure they're not using it for bad things? And my response was always, look, someone actually asked me specifically, how do you know they're not using it to like get their nails done or their hair done? 
which is like such a loaded question. It had a lot of racial, racist undertones to it. But I'm like, you know, it's May and everything is shut down. If you can find a beauty shop that is open right now, that would do your hair. And if that's what you need to feel good, because everything's Zoom and everyone can see you now. So you have to have a certain look. Your hair has to look a certain way. It is a business imperative for you to look and present yourself a certain way now. And if that's what you need to get through the day, if that's what you need to be able to work on your business and be able to present yourself the way that you feel confident in a Zoom business meeting, well, then so be it. Why do I care about how they're using that? It was just so interesting, the comments that came up that were like so loaded, about a hundred bucks. And your point earlier struck me as well, which is, yeah, it's a hundred bucks, but it's not about the money. It's about the gesture. It's you're not alone. You have support. There are other people thinking about you, rooting for you and wanting you to get through this. However you use that money, if that helps you get through this and fight another day, another week to get back up on your feet, who cares? And it's interesting, the emails that I've received, it's not something I started to help myself, but it really helped me. It's something about when the world is burning, knowing that your little pail of water at least helped stop the burning in one corner. It gave me hope. It gave me the push to continue to move on and to see this really simple idea that was actually a really big idea that was at a time in which people weren't feeling like they can do a big idea, that it worked. And I think that that really had a big impact on me personally and emotionally. It was a gift to me, strangely enough. Even though I didn't do it for myself, it became a gift. I do feel like when it comes to social impact, but almost everything in life, it's not those big moments that actually matter. It's the smaller ones. I view it as canvas where it's like these smaller brushstrokes together make for a masterpiece. And that's what you're talking about, whether it's $100, whether it's one initiative. And I'm also very interested and curious about hashtag Project Diane. So you named this for civil rights activist, Diane Nash, right? Can I share one last thing about the Dooney Fund? There's two things that were really interesting that came as a result of it. One, there's this belief in nonprofit and social enterprise that you have to measure things to death. You need to get the data to prove that it was worth it for whatever reason or justify it. So we didn't ask people to tell us how they spent the money. We didn't ask. We're like, take it. We're asking nothing of you. Ironically enough, over 50% of those who received it emailed us telling us how they spent the money. Now, if you are a nonprofit and you sent out a survey of recipients, unless you tied it to somehow the last distribution of money, you maybe will expect like 20 to 30%. We didn't ask for the data and we got it like without even asking for it. The other thing was particularly with, I think, communities of color and especially with Black women, we believe in returning the generosity. We have a deep inside of us of people who've helped us, like we believe in returning that. And so we had a number of women and founders and entrepreneurs who actually gave money back and gave significantly more money back to the fund than what was given to them, which is like bananas, right? Like who became donors. One in particular, she had a company that was an e-commerce fashion company. It was this hit really, really hard. And she took the $100 and helped reconfigure her website to make masks. She did her whole production, everything website to make masks. 
decided that she was going to give 10% of what she made back to the Dooney Fund. She made over $100,000 selling masks. And this was like in June, sent a check back to the fund for like $10,000. It wasn't like we were like, hey, you know, give back. None of that. Didn't even have to ask. I just thought that was so incredible. It was so counterintuitive to how most social enterprises, nonprofits work, particularly with communities of color. It's this assumption that we're doing you the favor, that you're some sort of community in need. And many times we are in need, but the need may be an acute need. It may not necessarily be a chronic need. And in this case, what we found for a lot of the entrepreneurs, it wasn't necessarily a chronic need. It was an acute need. It's like, right now I need help and support and I need it quickly. And the Dooney Fund was able to do that. I appreciate you sharing that. Providing support without having to have a quid pro quo or asking for something in return is very, very important. I believe in that same vein that if you do the right thing, good things happen. It all comes back around. It's an ecosystem, you know, and that's what you just described, basically. It does. And I think the more I talk about the Dini Fund, particularly with foundations and others of rethinking how they provide support and capital to communities, one of the things I stress is why do we need so much data? What's the question concern that you're hoping this data answers? Um, if I think of an organization like Echo and Green, right? It is evident that Echo and Green produces successful social enterprise leaders. I am a living example of that. So if you are a funder, you don't need a lot of data. I mean, you have so many proof points, right? What is the need for data? What is it going to tell you that meeting someone like me or many of the other successful Echo and Green founders isn't going to tell you? Isn't this proof enough? But I find like with philanthropy and foundations and sort of that whole world, there's this need to gather data to the point where I don't even know if they know why they're gathering. I don't even know if they know what question they're hoping to answer from the data. But you know why you're gathering it, which is why you founded Digital Undivided. When I look at Project Diane in particular, the data that you gathered, correct me if I'm wrong, revealed that Black and Latinx female founders receive less than 0.2% of all venture funding. And funding for Black women-owned ventures has increased by 500% thanks to you. The data gathering, not as a measure of performance, but as a flag where there is inequities because that's what we're talking about right now, is important. It was about quantifying a problem. When we did the first Project Diane, it was because we wanted to do an accelerator incubator program specifically targeted to Black and Latinx women. This program later became the big program. And we didn't have any baseline data. We were going to partners and they would say, well, okay, we understand that it's hard out there for Black women, but we don't understand, like, how hard? basically. And we realized that no one was collecting data to even quantify and set a baseline for the problem. And so that's different than using data to sort of control and make sure people are doing what you need them to do versus using data to get people to do what you need them to do, right? Those are two kind of different things. The first Project Diane started in 2015. It was released in 2016. It was an internal report. It wasn't meant to be released. But in the middle of doing this report, I realized, oh, my God, this data, like we can't keep this to ourselves. These are things that we talked about anecdotally as Black female founders. Now here's proof of what we were saying about how hard it is and, and the challenges. And so decided to make it public. We 
did not know it was going to be what it became. This was a little project that was led by myself and like nine data collectors. I mean, it was not something that (laughs) was thought to be this grand sort of structural change agent, but that's what it became. And to see how it has grown over the years has been really quite impactful. I stepped down as CEO of Digital Divided in June. We have another project, Diane, coming out this year. I'm really excited to see how much has changed since that first report in 2016 and how much has grown. It is better. There's a long way to go. Speaking about long way to go, one of the things that's been frustrating to me, but also understandable in the way that I engage with brands is there's this very common refrain post the murder of George Floyd, where companies are saying, we know we have more work to do. We know we can do better. I'm even somewhat guilty of saying that. But at what point can we stop saying that and start talking about what we're doing? I understand that the intent behind saying that was probably pure. It wasn't any malintent, but it felt like a stalling tactic or a technique. And it's just been kind of bothering me in the same way that we're using words like uncertainty and unprecedented too much, you know? And I'm just curious how you're feeling about that and have brands and have companies done more? And at what point do they stop saying that and start doing more shit that's actually impactful? I think brands, their intent is there. I think the challenge is deep and it goes to who you feel can lead. In order to solve this, brands are going to have to look at different types of leadership and different types of leaders. And those that are current leading are probably not equipped. Their leadership style, their leadership skills are probably not equipped to lead in this point. And so the question is finding those who can. And that's one of the things that I'm working on with my startup is empowering those with capital, with skills, who can solve the problem to solve the problem. And I think one of the challenges I see, particularly within the tech space, which is the space that I'm in quite a bit, is you have to be okay with it. You may not be the smartest person on this issue. And I think that's a deep challenge because that takes a certain level of vulnerability. It takes a certain level of self-awareness to realize, I don't know how to do this. I'm not going to be able to lead on this particular topic. So I have to find someone else to lead and maybe consciously or subconsciously, this is not someone who I necessarily thought would be the leader. Their leadership style may not have been the leadership style that I would identify with. And that's a very uncomfortable place for a lot of people to be. Till we get to that point and truly empower, and that's not just getting ahead of DEI, diversity inclusion head. It's really like this is a problem in which not only do we have a DEI head, but this person has a $50 million budget and they report directly to me as a CEO. A lot of the DEI positions are just sort of positions in name only. They're window dressing. A lot of these positions don't have budgets. They don't report to the CEO, they report to the director of HR. They're not really impactful. And so it's going to take a different type of leadership to lead us out of this. And I also think it probably needs to be baked into their ESG metrics. And I know we're talking about performance before, but I've long been saying that it should be E-E-S-G. And the other E is equity and equality. Environment's important, don't get me wrong. But I think that burying equity and equality inside of this social part 
isn't enough. I think it needs to stand on its own because I think it's its own issue. So I'm glad to hear your perspective. And I try not to be snarky or overly skeptical about these things, but it's just kind of how I'm wired. And I also equally get frustrated. I can't remember what podcast it was or episode. There's been a lot of credentialing too on LinkedIn. Look who we hired. And I'm like scrolling through my LinkedIn, companies who previously had never even announced new executives joining, or they would never like amplify it. It would just be a press release over the wire. Now you're seeing all sorts of people of color and black people. Now it's packed in my LinkedIn. I just, again, have to question. I know the intent isn't bad, but I feel like they're over-indexing on it. Oh, no, look, we're okay. We hired a black person and they're leading our DE&I initiatives. Okay, so you've done 0.05% of the job. Now tell me what you're going to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to who does that person report to? What type of budget do they have? Are they sitting in the C-level conversations? How is this person empowered? How is this person allowed to lead? Because that's one of the challenges. And I have a lot of friends who are DEI heads, especially more in the past like couple of months. There's some who are quite frustrated and kind of like, okay, I'm only here in window dressing only. And then there's those who have been empowered and who have budgets, who meet with the CEO. At one point, one of my friends was meeting with the CEO at least once a week for an hour talking about stuff, like a direct, and this person really wanted to hear what could be done. She was really, and still continues to be a, a strong advisor to him on how to sort of navigate this. Of course, as a CEO, he has to think of the business part of it, but also this other part. And she was a real advisor to him on how to do it and thinking of ways in which to marriage the two. That sort of relationship is incredibly successful. And that company is doing really well. This is going to get very uncomfortable. Race is uncomfortable. Race is very uncomfortable. I think it's even a more uncomfortable discussion than class. We're going to have to get comfortable with having uncomfortable discussions if we want to come out of this. And that includes white male CEOs. You're going to have to get comfortable with that. You're probably going to hear some things that you do not want to hear. You wish you could turn your ears off because you just want to focus on the business and for public companies getting the most value to your shareholders. But now your shareholders actually care about diversity, what you're doing in the environment, all of those sort of things, these issues that you probably weren't trained to deal with when you went to Harvard MBA. Wharton didn't have necessarily class on how to deal with this. So now you have to. It's a difficult position for these CEOs to probably be in. But those that are winning are those who understand that they don't know the solution and seek out people who do and listen to those people. I'll tell you where I find a lot of hope. And I know that it's going to take some years to catch up. But I look at my kids who are 19 and 16, and they're very, very privileged to have gotten a great public school education in Westchester County, New York. In the same way that I got a great public school education in northern New Jersey, They are so far ahead in terms of social constructs and everything that we're talking about than we ever were. They're so well equipped. And I know not everybody in the country in that age range or in that cohort is that way, but I think increasingly that's our future generation. And to me, they are activists. They're enlightened. They're progressive. They are very transparent and very okay having these uncomfortable conversations. I feel a lot of hope for that Gen Z And whatever comes after that, whatever a marketer wants to call it after that, because they are our next leaders. And I feel good about that. They're watching in real time this divide, an election that's just days away as we're recording this. And they know what's right and what's wrong. I don't have to tell them. In fact, they're telling me, Maura, I'm learning more from them than they are from me at this point. What I love about 
particularly Gen Z, is that they don't have our shit. Meaning they have not taken all of the stuff that we have. They have like completely like kind of sloughed it off. They grew up in a world where the only president they knew before this president was a black president. Um, of course, a black person could be president because a black person was president. And they grew up in that world. And I can only imagine for them seeing sort of some of the things that are playing out right now of kind of, and I've had talks with my nephew who's 17 and it's like, this is absurd. This is like ridiculous. Like, what is he talking about? Like so interesting to see how they sort of think of things and they have access to so much information. So it's really hard to kind of not be truthful with them. You can't really lie to them. They're an interesting generation. I'm super excited for them. You don't get respect just for being older. I think those of us who are kind of late millennial Gen X were taught that you give people respect because they're older than you. But with Gen Z, it's like, no, you have to earn the respect. You get respect because you've been respectful, right? You get respect because you've sort of proven that you are who you are. You have this authenticity. And so it's really interesting to see that turned on its head because it's like, we're not going to respect you just because you're older or because you have this position. Because we grew up in a world where we saw people get positions that they didn't necessarily deserve. It's really fascinating. And it gives me a lot of hope and a lot of excitement for the future. They're a generation that's fighters too. They believe in standing up for what it is that they believe in. And I think that is also very, very exciting. Agitation is important. I think about the notion of even an agitator on a washing machine. There's a reason why it's there. And these kids know policy too. They have a grasp of policy that at 17, 18, I don't think I had this sort of grasp of policy and how things work and how to make change. I mean, it's exciting to see. And I think for us as people who are older, being able to sort of take a step back and let them lead at a very early age, because I think it's usually, at least in this time period that we grew up as Gen Xers and stuff, you don't get to lead until you reach a certain point. You don't get to lead until after you graduate from college and you've gotten a couple of years and then you can lead. But it's an opportunity for us older people to model a different way. Let the children lead. Basically, they can. I think it's an exciting way to sort of train the future at the same time. And that's the approach we took at the Dooney Fund, why everyone is under 45. And it was a bit controversial with some of our like fund recipients because many are over 45. It was not restricted to age or anything. And the idea was, let's model a different way of leadership. Oftentimes, we weren't trained necessarily how to step into leadership by previous generations. And so let us model something different. These young women are incredible. They work at Tesla. We have one who's a QA tester at Activision. I mean, like, they're brilliant. They know how to do things. They know how to put together things. They can see policy. So as a person who is slightly older, <laughs> it's my imperative to help guide them and sort of an advisor to develop their leadership, not to lead them, but to help them discover their own leadership and uncover their own leadership. And imagine what would have happened. I just think of if I would have been given that opportunity earlier at 20, 22 to lead where would I have been at? Imagine if our generation had that sort of um, guidance early on. Where would we be at now? 
if we understood our power and our leadership capabilities very early, 10, 15 years earlier, what kind of world might we have created? One last question. I'm a huge public radio nerd, big time. The two main sources of information for me are anything related to an NPR affiliate or broadcast and the BBC, because the BBC actually covers the world, whereas our mainstay broadcast publications here in the US are so polarized at this point, it's just hard to listen to them. You're on the board of Public Radio International. By the way, not that I even have a shot at this, but if there's ever a vacancy, you heard it here, I would love that opportunity. What is that like? And how amazing is that? Or am I just kind of living in this fairy tale and it's not as great as it sounds? No, I mean, it is amazing. I think the role of public radio and its importance, I think has been underscored during this time. Public radio are the original podcasters, right? It is exciting to see how audio is now starting to, and not now it's been for a couple of years, but it's really reached this sort of level in which others are now joining in. For a while, people weren't listening to the radio. It was only a certain group of people on your way to work. Maybe you might listen to NPR, catch up on Studio 1A or something like that. But now everyone's listening to audio. So it's incredibly exciting. It's an honor and a privilege to serve on the board, especially working on some of the initiatives around diversity and inclusion in particular, and really getting more people of color, more women involved in public radio and seeing the future and seeing sort of where it's going. It's been really super exciting for me. I've personally learned a lot about how to be a good board member to how to manage and work with people who are coming from very different backgrounds. So it's been really incredible. And to see the growth of podcasts, that in and of itself has been like an amazing journey. And to see that public radio, particularly PRX, because it's now PRX, it merged with PRX and PRI merged, to see how PRX has been in the forefront of that and really pushing that and really even things on like how to monetize your podcast, like thinking of monetization. I mean, that's a big thing, as you know, as a podcaster, like how to create quality audio. PRX has a partnership with Google that trains up and coming podcasters, mostly of color and women. So it's really exciting to be a part of that and, and to see this future and to see audio continue. I think that's like the big thing. I was thinking the other day, there are a lot of things that have upset me over the last year. One thing that would upset me the most is if public radio went away, which I hope it never, ever does. In fact, I'm like, how do I actually move in with Terry Gross and her husband? Because (laughs) I love Terry Gross. I think it's an amazing future. And I love how technology is being used to bring these very sort of traditional industries into their next phase. Technology bringing radio and audio into its next phase. The same with video. I mean, I was just reading now, you know, Disney decided that it's going to focus on streaming. That's like revolutionary. Disney saying we're focusing on streaming and not on doing feature films in movie theaters. And that's, again, technology moving this traditional industry of movies into its future, which is streaming. So it's exciting to have a front seat to that. 
Oh, for sure. So listen, Catherine, I can speak to you for hours. Maybe you might not feel the same way, but I certainly feel that way. And I really appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to having you back on one day as well. And thank you for everything that you're doing. And I'm looking forward to continuing to watch your progress and the impact you're making in these communities. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quicken, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. 